This letter that we're looking at called 1 Timothy was written by the Apostle Paul to his dear friend um, and fellow partner in the gospel, Timothy. It was written for the purposes of correcting false doctrine, uh, shutting down those false teachers, but also telling people in the church how they are to conduct themselves in the church. For several weeks we talked about combating false doctrine, and so now we're going to talk about what it is that we are to do in the church at the end of chapter 1, Paul charged Timothy uh, to fight the good fight of faith. And what we realize is that there is a cosmic battle, an ultimate battle going on between God and Satan. And it's raged on for years and years, and this battle here on earth is over the souls of men and women. In Genesis chapter 1, God created humanity and he created us in his image so that he could have a relationship with us. And Satan disrupted that relationship by causing our first parents, by tempting them to rebel against God, plunging the whole world into sin. The result of that, that fall, is that what God did is he put in motion a plan, a plan to bring us back into relationship with him. That is the main message of the entire Bible. The whole Bible is about God seeking to bring us back into relationship with him. And 1 Timothy chapter 2 verses 1 through 7 talks about God's desire to bring humanity uh, back to himself. And so let's read it. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2 verses 1 through 7. This is the very word of God. First of all then, I urge... That supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings, and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God— and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. This ends the reading of God's word. Uh, let's look to him. We are desperate uh, to hear from him. Father, we thank and praise you for who you are. We thank you for your word which guides us. I pray that as I speak, I pray that your words would come through. And I pray that once again we would not see these as suggestions because they're not. They are commands given to us by an all-wise and all-holy God who is intent on his glory and our good. And so I just pray that we would put these things into practice, the things that we learn. And if we're not doing them right now, stir us to do them. And we just pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. There's a lot actually in this passage, um, but I think that the message is pretty clear. And that's the message that I really uh, want to make sure that comes out today. And that message is that salvation is available for us and for those around us. Therefore, you and I should be diligent to pray for all people. 
I want to drive that point home this morning and explain what it actually looks like for us in 2020. To that end, we're going to look at four main things today. Four main things. We're going to look at the what of prayer. We're going to look at the who of prayer, the how of prayer, and the why of prayer. Now, although not explicitly stated in this text, the when and the where of prayer are expressed elsewhere in the Bible. The when of prayer is when? Always. always. Yes, thank you very much. Yes, always. And the where of prayer is where? Everywhere, right? There's never a place where you're like, no, I don't pray here, right? We are to pray. If we're to pray always, then that means we pray wherever we are. Our life is a prayer given up to God. So let's talk about these things. We begin with the what. What are we to do? And the answer is simple. We are to pray. This is found in verse 1 where Paul says this. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made. The good warfare always begins on our knees. The good warfare that we fight always begins on our knees, spiritually speaking. Prayer shows and demonstrates an utter and complete dependence upon God for everything. It's as simple as that. When you pray for things, what you are praying is this, God, unless you show up and provide these things, I will not have them. Therefore, I ask you to provide. And when you pray, pray prayers of thanksgiving, when you pray prayers of thanksgiving, what you are saying there is, God, unless you showed up, unless you had given, uh, given me these things, I would not have had them. Therefore, I thank you. So you see how prayer shows complete dependence on God. Paul urges Timothy and us to pray. That word urge means to come alongside of. And I love that because Paul is not just saying, you pray, I'm not going to. Paul is saying, I am right there along with you. I am praying. I'm not asking you to do something that I'm not doing. I am praying for those in Ephesus along with you, Timothy. And so that's what we're to do. We are to pray. Verse 1 also tells us how we are to pray by listing several synonyms for prayer. Namely, we are to pray with supplications, with prayers, with intercessions, and with thanksgivings. Now, I want to just quickly define all of these terms, and then we'll return to them later uh, so that we can see how they specifically apply to the who and the why of prayer. So first of all, he says, I, I urge that supplications be made. Supplications are, are basically to make uh, known one's particular needs. Okay, that's what supplication means. I am lacking this. I need this. The next term, prayer, um, refers to, uh, there's more of an, a worshipful element to that. We'll explain that um, as, we, as we go along. Uh, but it, it introduces this worshipful element um, uh, in our prayers for people. Intercession is basically what it says. It means to intercede for someone. Once again, we will uh, look at that a little bit more in detail. And then finally, we are to offer prayers of thanksgiving. Uh, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 7, uh, 17 and 18, uh, Paul says, pray without ceasing, 
right? Once again, that is the when of prayer. It is always pray without ceasing. And then he says, and give thanks in all circumstances. Wait, wait, all circumstances? Even the bad ones? Yes, give thanks in all circumstances. Why? For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Okay, so we've talked about the what and the how of prayer, namely that we are to pray specifically with prayers of supplication, prayer, um, intercession, and thanksgiving. But who are we to pray for? And this brings us to our third point, the who of prayer. The answer to this question uh, we find at the end of verse 1 with those simple three words, for all people. Who are we to pray for? all people. Now let's think practically for a second here. It is absolutely impossible for me or any other individual in here to pray specifically or meaningfully for the other seven billion people on this planet, right? You just cannot do it. Therefore, we must join with other Christians in Galveston in Texas, in the United States, in the world, to pray for everyone. That's a tall order, right? No wonder why he says, pray without ceasing, right? If you're going to cover everyone, we need to be constantly in prayer. And just think about Jesus, right? Jesus, the very Son of God, God in the flesh. And what does he do? He is praying all the time. He is praying all the time. So we join others in this mission. After Paul gives the general instruction to pray for all, he lists two specific groups of people. Um, He says, pray for kings and for all who are in high positions. There's a reason given uh, to pray for those who are in authority over us. And this brings us to our fourth and final point of the why of prayer. And we're going to spend the most of our, uh, most of our time here this morning keeping in mind who we are to pray for and how we are to pray for them. There are two main reasons given in this passage for why we are to pray for all men, particularly for kings and for those who are in authority over us. There is a primary reason and there is a secondary reason. The secondary reason is makes the primary reason more attainable, and I'll explain that in a second. The secondary reason is given uh, at the end of verse 2. It says this, that we we are to pray for all men and for those in high positions that so that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. That is the secondary reason for which we are to pray. The primary or main reason we are to pray is found in verse 4, where where Paul states that God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. The primary reason we pray for people is that they would be saved. Plain and simple. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus said, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus' primary mission was to save people. And that should be our mission as well. 
But in order for someone to be saved, they have to hear the message of the gospel from us. Now the problem with sharing the gospel is that it's becoming increasingly more difficult in our culture to do that. And it's becoming increasingly more difficult because of the anti-Christian laws being passed at a national level and at a local level. As well as the anti-Christian policies that are being established in various corporations and uh, businesses across this country as well. Policies and laws uh, that punish people who try to promote, defend, or even live by Christian standards. There are people in this very church who have been told by supervisors, people in high positions, that you can't say that when they're talking about Christ. You can't have that up on your wall. You can't have that on your desk. If someone asks you about this, you tell them this. There are people in our church that that has happened to. There are people across this country and I could tell you, I could stand up here literally for an hour to two hours to tell you story after story uh, that I've read about and heard about, documented stuff where people, Christians, have been fired or harassed or kicked out of a program at a university because of their stance for Jesus Christ, their Christian values. We've talked about uh, Christian uh, photographers and, and Christian bakers and Christian uh, clerks who have been fired or harassed or sued because they refuse to go against their Christian values. And in particular, in, in baking a cake for a same-sex wedding or taking pictures for a same-sex wedding or, or issuing um, a, a marriage license to same-sex couples. Harassed, fired, sued. And I believe that these tax attacks are increasing in our country. When policies and laws restrict Christian freedoms, when they threaten termination of employment or even jail time, then it becomes more difficult to spread the life-giving message of the gospel. And this is what Satan intends to do, right? He wants to shut it down. And we've talked about it. He wants to shut it down through persecution or he wants to shut it down through false teaching. And right now, when we're talking about this, that persecution, this is one of the ways that Satan tries to do that. I want you to think with me um, about an extreme scenario for a moment. Let's just picture that every single government elected official that has legislative power was a Christian. At the local level, uh, the state level, the federal level. Let's just imagine that every single one of them, right up to the President of the United States, was a Christian. Okay, you could imagine that if that was the case, the laws that would be coming down on the books would reflect Christian values, which in the end would mean that in terms of the gospel proclamation, there would be no hindrance to the gospel going forth in terms of, in terms of legal requirements. Because the laws would reflect what was important to the officials, and they're devout Christians, they love God, therefore they're going to pass laws that reflect the character of God. That would be ideal, right? I mean, that would be ideal. That would be a good thing, that we're not uh, suffering that persecution. Now, there are two big problems with this scenario. The first problem is that you cannot legislate someone into the kingdom of heaven, right? You can't legislate someone into the kingdom of heaven. 
just because there are Christian laws, laws that are based on, on the Bible, does not mean that people are Christians. I think that's one of the problems that we found in the United States is we are called a Christian country. Therefore, we just assume that everyone is a Christian there. You cannot legislate morality. You cannot legislate uh, someone into the kingdom of heaven. Um, Let me just give you one example of this. Let's just say that tomorrow the Supreme Court of the United States handed down a ruling that said same-sex marriage is illegal. We've looked at the Bible. Based on the Bible, the Word of God, we have determined that um, same-sex marriage is illegal. Here's what would not happen. You would not have a mass conversion of people struggling with homosexuals, uh, homosexuality who would, who would say, you know what? We were wrong. The Christians were right. So I guess we should repent and believe the gospel. You wouldn't have that. You would have a law now restricting what they do that changes their, forces their outward behavior, but hasn't done anything to change their heart. A second problem with this scenario, which is linked to the first, is that when laws are passed in a state or in a a country that reflect a Christian ethic or worldview, what sadly happens is that Christians start to become complacent, right? We start to become complacent. As I said before, we're a Christian nation. We start to assume that that everyone um, believes this, that everyone knows the gospel, that everyone believes the gospel and loves the gospel. Therefore, we don't need to get out there. There's no one that's antagonistic because if they are antagonistic, we can throw them in jail. We can silence them. And therefore, we assume that everything is good with the world. And all the while, Satan is on the move. Today, there are more laws passed in favor of immorality in this country than ever before. As a result of these laws and policies, persecution for Christians has increased. And what I believe um, is that if you look at history, because we have taken the gospel lightly, because we've taken the mandate to make disciples lightly, we're now paying the price. And I don't pretend to know all the reasons that God allows persecution or brings persecution um, of his people, but there are a few things that we do know about persecution. The first thing that we know about persecution is that Jesus said it would happen, right? Jesus said that persecution would come. A second thing that we know about persecution is that persecution has a purifying effect. And here's what I mean by that. If you have a bunch of nominal, quote-unquote, Christians in a church, and then severe persecution breaks out to where people are losing their jobs and maybe even losing their lives, you're going to clear out the people who aren't serious about it. You're going to clear out the people who are saying, the only reason I was coming because my mom wanted me to come, or they went, and, and I just assumed that I was a Christian, but I'm not willing to die for this. Right? And so they pull out, and the only ones that are left are those who truly have given their life to Jesus. A third thing that happens in persecution is that there's this refocusing effect to where maybe your, your mind was set on the things of this world, uh, the pursuit of money, the pursuit of comfort at all costs, and now you realize that this world, that this life is temporary, and what am I going to do for eternity? And so there's this focus, this refocus from the things of this world to setting our affections on the things above. That's one of the things that persecution does. 
Now, we don't say ever, bring it on, God, right? But we realize that, God, you are doing this for a reason. What are you trying to teach the church? What are you trying to teach me? Are you calling me to refocus my attentions? They've become, they've gotten off of you. And my own comforts and happiness has taken precedent. Well, once again, persecution can do these things. But let me just talk just a minute about these words that are used here in our passage about a peaceful, quiet, godly, and dignified life. So you understand exactly what this means in our context, what it means for you and me personally. The words peaceful and quiet are, are very similar in their meaning. Uh, they basically mean a tranquil and undisturbed life. So this is what Paul is telling Timothy and the church and us to pray for. Pray that you would be able to have a peaceful and tranquil, and tranquil life, an undisturbed life. Peaceful and quiet uh, describe the environment that we desire to uh, live in, whereas godly and dignified describe the manner in which we are to live in that environment. The word godly means devotion or piety towards God. Specifically, the word literally means a well-directed reverence, but it does not just imply an inward reality. It's, it's more dealing with the outward expression of that godliness to where people are looking at you and saying there's something different about this person. There's something, there's, there, there's a reverence that they have. The word dignified is an interesting word. Um, here's what it means. The person who, is, who lives a dignified life is somewhere between caring to please nobody and endeavoring at all costs to please everybody. It's somewhere between there. I don't care about pleasing anyone to I want to please everyone. And what this is basically saying is that there's a balance to their words and actions. So as to, they, they're careful about what they say and about what they do and about what they post because they don't want to unnecessarily offend anyone nor do they want to unnecessarily associate with someone that they don't want to associate with. So they live this balanced life. And it's not a life of, of compromise. It's a, it's a calculated life. Knowing that if I say this, I may offend someone unintentionally. They are respectful to others. Therefore, they are respected by others. This doesn't mean that everyone agrees with them. But this means that people are saying, I don't agree with you, but the way that you handle yourself, the way that you conduct yourself, I have no qualms about. You are very respectful to what my opinions are, what my beliefs are. And so those people are more likely to be heard. This is the kind of living that I believe Jesus sums up in his words in Matthew 5.16, where he says this, Let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Live in such a way that they're like, wow, who is it that you serve? Why, you really reflect his character. Wow, the way that you treat others is amazing. The way that you don't retaliate is amazing. Why are you like that? And also Paul's qualifications for an elder, which are really can apply to anyone, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 7, which we'll get to in a couple weeks, it says this, an elder must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. This is how we are to live. We're to live in a respectful way that we don't bring disgrace on the gospel. 
All of us are called to live lives that reflect the character of God in this world. A character that is loving, a character that is full of mercy, a character that loves justice and hates oppression of any kind, a a, a character that seeks to help those who are in need, to promote the good of the neighborhood, of the city, of the community, of the country as a whole. In other words, we are to be upstanding citizens, not intentionally being antagonistic for the purpose of just picking a fight with the world. Okay? This is particularly important this year because we are entering into a political season, right? And there's going to be a lot of hatred, a lot of hatred locally and on the news. You're going to hear it. And I don't care what, who you are, right? So here's the deal. If you're a Republican, you are going to really, really begin to hate the Democrats in the upcoming months, if you don't already. If you're a Democrat, you're going to really, really start to uh, hate the Republicans. And the temptation, the tendency for a lot of people, even including Christians, will be to start to wear clothing or put bumper stickers on our cars or put posts on social media that are intentionally written or placed there to create anger in someone else. We're going to do it. Oh, this person makes me mad. So you start to post something, right? You just want to rile up the opponents. You want to make them angry. Let me give you one example of, of a subtle difference here. And take example, the example of abortion. If I were to show you a sign that said this, abortion is murder, that makes a statement, right? But if I were to show you a sign that said this, whoever supports abortion supports murder. Do you see the subtle difference in those? One may simply be making a statement. The other, in my opinion, seems to be making a statement, I want you to be angry. I want you that if you support abortion, I want you to know that you're just as bad as a murderer. And what happens with those kind of things is that we start to push people away from us. And so what I want to do is I want to caution you in this political season. Be careful, very careful what you say and what you do. Examine your motives. Why am I posting this? Why am I wearing this? Why am I putting this bumper sticker on my car? Am I doing it to tick the person off behind me? Am I doing this to make my liberal friends angry on social media? Because once again, there's nothing wrong with posting those things, but where is your motive behind this? Is it for the glory of God and for the good of all mankind? Now, please don't hear what I'm not saying. I am not saying that there are not times where we can be forceful and where we need to be forceful because sometimes that's the only way that the message gets across. And we just stand up and we say, this is wrong. I don't care what you say, this is wrong. To stand up and say, thinking about the unborn and saying, abortion is murder. It's plain and simple. I'm just going to tell you. Not trying to cause any anger in you, but I just want you to know you should be angry about this as well. There are times where we, where, where we have to be forceful and get our message across. But if we are being intentionally mean-spirited with our words and actions for the purpose of arousing anger in someone, what we end up doing at that moment is we end up building more walls than bridges between us and the unbelieving community. 
We start to build those walls, which is saying, stay away from me. You disgust me, rather than building bridges and saying, you're a sinner just like I am, and you are welcome to come and to repent and to be accepted by Jesus. We build those walls rather than those bridges. At that point, we lose the heart of this passage. We circumvent the desire of God, which according to verse 3 is to save people, not to condemn people. Our goal is to draw people to God, not push them further away. God's desire, according to this passage, is that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. I think that those terms, saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, are synonymous here. But let me just quickly address that statement that God's desire is to save all people. Um, I don't want to spend much time here at all. Um, I will simply say this. Uh, many of you know I am what is known as a Calvinist. If you don't know what that means, it's probably good because I'm not going to stir any controversy. I'm a Calvinist, which, be- which means that I believe that God has chosen certain people for salvation and has not chosen other people for salvation. Okay? Um, once again, I'm not, I believe that the Bible teaches that. I believe that there's tons of verses that talk about that. If you don't understand what that means, how I can take that view, I'm more than happy to sit down with you during the week and to talk about it. But here's what I want to say. Um, regardless of what your view on uh, election is, of God choosing uh, certain people and not choosing other, we cannot ignore verses like John 3:16 and 17, which says this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. And, and verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is the heart of God. God wants to save, not to condemn. And, the, and we see this clearly in Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11. And this actually appears a couple times in the book of, of Ezekiel. Ezekiel is this long prophecy, 48 chapters. And the prophecy is filled with the judgment, the just judgment of God on sinful people. People who've rebelled against God. People are, who are on their way to destruction, an eternal destruction away from God. And in the midst of that, God says on at least two occasions, but one in Ezekiel 33, 11, he says this, um, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. And then he gives this urgent plea, turn back, turn back from your evil ways. God's desire is for unbelievers to come to the knowledge of the truth about his son and therefore be saved. And so this is what I want to say. If that's what God's desire is, then it must be our desire as well. It must be our heart's desire as well. Because regardless of what you think you know or don't know about the doctrine of election, I can assure you this. You do not know who the elect are. There is no big E on someone's forehead or an E across their chest that says, I'm elect, come witness to me. We don't know. And so we are to live and proclaim the truth in a manner which we assume everyone in Galveston, everyone in Texas, everyone in the United States and the world is elect. And we get out there and we proclaim that gospel to them. Therefore, we preach proclaim it to everyone. This leads us to a very important question. Um, what is the knowledge of the truth spoken of in 
verse 4 that leads to salvation. And this is something that we, we make sure to incorporate in nearly all of our sermons, and that's the gospel message, because Paul gives the answer in verses 5 and 6 where he says this, for there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. The message is that all, every man, woman, and child that ever comes into this world is a sinner, justly deserving God's wrath. And God desires to save mankind from that wrath. Therefore, as a result of that desire, he sent his son into the world to be a ransom for us. He sent his son to be a ransom for us. And it's very important to understand this because it was, uh, it, Jesus was a man. It was a man who had originally violated the law of God. It was our first parents, Adam and Eve, who partook of the fruit that they were told not to. They said, no, we will not listen to God. We will listen to Satan. And they rebelled against God. It was a man, it was a man that did that. And therefore, it had to be a man. It had to be men and women that were punished for that sin. That's why the millions of Old Testament animal sacrifices, as the book of Hebrews says, never took away a single sin because it wasn't a lamb or a bull that partook of the forbidden fruit. It wasn't a lamb or a bull that broke the Ten Commandments. It was mankind that did that. Therefore, man had to pay the price. And those sacrifices of the sheep or the lambs or the goats were all pointing to the one perfect sacrifice that would come one day in the person of the God-man, Jesus Christ. In this passage in 1 Timothy 2, Jesus' humanity is emphasized for the very fact that I just stated, and that's because it had to be a man who paid for our sins, and it had to be a perfect man. And as a human being, Jesus lived the perfect life that you and I could not live. And then he was punished for every wrong thing that you and I did, every sin that we ever, uh, every lie that we ever told, every, every evil thought or selfish thought or act that we ever had. Every word of gossip that we ever had, Jesus was punished for every single one of those, even though he never uttered a single lie or had a single evil thought towards anyone. He paid the ransom to God that was owed so that we could be set free. This is the message that we are to proclaim. The knowledge of the truth that brings salvation. That is what we're talking about. But all we can do in the end, is proclaim this message as Paul commanded us to do and as Paul did himself, and then pray. Pray that that message takes root in the hearts of the people around us. That's all we can do is proclaim the message and then pray. We can't force anyone into the kingdom. I can't force my kids to believe in Jesus. I can't force any co-workers to believe in Jesus. You can't do that. We proclaim the message and then we pray we cry out to God on behalf of these people, which brings us back to the how of prayer. How are we to pray for those around us? Well, once again, we go back to verse 1. And I want to look at these again. I told you that we're just going to define them quickly and then go back and see how they apply to us here. The first thing that we are to do is offer supplications for them. We are to pray for their needs. And to that end, this is what I want to ask you. The people that you come into contact with every day, do you know what their needs are? 
Do you know what their needs are? Do you know what they're struggling with in their life? Do you know if there's any physical ailments or mental ailments or, or, or emotional ailments that they're going through? Do you know them well enough? Do you know your neighbors enough to, that, that, hey, so-and-so, uh, this person just lost their father, or this person just lost their son, or whatever it is? Do you know the suffering that they're going through right now? Will we care to get to know them so that we can pray intelligently for them? All those things are important. And we should be praying for them. We should be knowing our neighbors. But ultimately, what we should be doing is we should be praying for their ultimate need, and that is the need of salvation. We should be praying that God opens their hearts to receive his message of salvation. So we reach out to them. We get involved in their lives. We know their joys and their sorrows. But our biggest and most earnest prayer is that they would be saved. The next word after supplications is prayers. Prayers. And as I mentioned before, this word um, has to do more with worship. Here's what one commentator uh, said, uh, noting uh, regarding this aspect of prayer. He said this, quote, It thus carries with it a unique element of worship and reverence. Prayer for the lost is ultimately directed at God as an act of worship because the salvation of sinners causes them to give glory to him. In 2 Corinthians 4.15, Paul reveals that all his efforts at reaching the ungodly were to spread saving grace to more and more people so that they could give thanks to God, which would abound to his glory, end quote. So there's that element of worship here. We're offering prayers. Uh, uh, our, our offer of prayer is an offer of worship up to God. You might even look at it this way. Supplications are basically, in a sense, saying this, God, this person is lost without you. Fulfill that need that they have of you. And whereas these prayers uh, that are directed towards God in worship are basically saying, God, you are so great that you deserve their worship. You deserve for this person who is, who is antagonistic against you. You deserve their worship. You created them. You sustain them. The next way that we are to pray in addition to supplications and prayers is in an intercessory way. The word uh, intercession that's used here is also used um, of the Holy Spirit in uh, Romans eight twenty six, where it says the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. But more importantly, it's used of Jesus in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, where it says that Jesus is able to save us to the uttermost because he ever lives to make intercession for us. And the reason I say more importantly than the Holy Spirit, because unlike the Holy Spirit, Jesus came, he took on flesh and blood. He took on humanity and so he, as the writer of Hebrews says, he can sympathize with us. He can relate with us. He knew what it was like to suffer physical or emotional or even spiritual pain. He knew what it was like to be hungry, to be tired, to be angry, to be sad. And as a result, the Bible says that Jesus sympathizes with our weakness. Jesus relates to us. He says, I understand. I was rejected. I was hated. I went hungry. I have felt rejection. That is at the heart of this type of prayer, this, this prayer of, 
of intercession is a prayer not only of advocacy, but also of empathy, of sympathy, of compassion, of involvement in the person's life. It's not uh, just a cold, detached, or impersonal act. Kind of like a, a public defender who is assigned to someone that they don't know and they don't care about. Hey, I'm getting paid and I'm just going to represent you. That's not how Jesus approaches us. And that's not how we should approach others. Well, he said, I need to pray for you, so I want to pray for you. No, we don't do that. We are to remember what it was like to be without God and without hope in this world. And how we would have desperately wanted someone to intercede for us. To actually plead to God on behalf of us. Then we're to go before God and intercede for these people saying, Father, forgive them. Forgive my boss. She doesn't know what she's doing. Forgive my neighbor. He doesn't know what he's doing. Forgive my coworker. They don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. Save them. And finally, we're to offer thanksgiving to God. As I mentioned in 1 Thessalonians 5, we're to thank God in every situation. But particularly here, we're to thank God that he has provided a way for people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. We are to thank God that Jesus came into this world to save sinners. And we're to thank him because we're all sinners in need of a savior. This is the message of salvation. The message of salvation, this message of salvation needs to be taken to all men. But before we go, and as we go, we are to pray for all men. We are to pray for their need of salvation. We're to pray in a spirit of worship. We are to plead and intercede for them, pleading that God would take away their sins. And we're to thank God that he sent his son Jesus into the world to pay the ransom for those sins so that we could be brought back into relationship with God. We are to pray. And that's actually what we are going to do now. We're going to do something a little bit unusual um, here in our service. Um, I'm going to ask Woody to come forward. In our passage, it says to pray for um, our government officials, those uh, kings uh, and those who are in positions of authority above us. And so uh, there are many government officials that we're not going to cover today, uh, but Woody is going to pray for the mayor of Galveston. He's going to pray for the governor of Texas and then the president of the United States. And then after Woody has done that, what we're going to do this is going to be unusual, um, is we're actually going to break into smaller groups. Um, and I'm not going to define what those groups are more than, or, or more than one, okay? Uh, two or more people uh, that you're just going to gather. And what you're going to do in that group, in this church, is you're just going to say, here is someone in authority either over me or over um, someone else that I want to pray for. This is my boss's name. I don't think that my boss knows Jesus. And so I want to pray that my boss comes to know Jesus, and I want to pray that they make policies that actually don't hinder the progress of the gospel. This is my teacher. I want to pray for uh, her. This is my professor. I want to pray for him. Whatever it is, we want to pray for those people. And when we pray, people, pray actually believing that God can move mountains. Don't just go through the motions. Pray God can actually change the hearts of these people.
So that's what we're going to do. I'm going to ask Woody to come uh, up here and to pray, and then we're going to break into smaller groups. Oh, dear Father, we come before you and uh, know that you have instituted governments over us for our welfare and our caring. And we're thankful that you have populated those governments. You have assigned people to where you want them to be. Uh, Father, we come at this time and we pray for our Mayor, Mayor Yarborough. We ask that you give him wisdom and understanding as he leads our city council and leads our city uh, that uh, the short time that he has left that he will use your wisdom in the affairs of the city. And Father, our governor, Governor Abbott, he has a greater responsibility of our state, uh, the state of Texas, and we ask wisdom with him. And, and we know that he is uh, confined to a wheelchair because of uh, things that have happened to him, but Father, give him the strength, the understanding, and the, and the knowledge to uh, just lead us and lead us with your word. Father, we also pray for our president, President Trump. Uh, we know that you have sent him here for such a time as this, and we just pray that he turns to you at every chance and opportunity to uh, use your wisdom to make decisions for our country. And Father, we now have before us an election. There are a number of choices we need to make specifically for our mayor and for our president. So we ask you to give us understanding of those that are seeking that office and wisdom to vote for the one that you would love and you have set to be before us. We don't understand that you have, uh, or how it works that you have designated them and that we have the choice to choose them. But we just pray for the wisdom to do so and do this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.